Future Pulse, investigating innovative cardiovascular research and the intersection of academic theory and clinical practice. I'm Dr. Thomas Nero, interventional cardiologist and director of cardiovascular research at CAFC. Hi, this is Dr. Thomas Nero, and welcome to Future Pulse. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Sharon Hayes from the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Hayes is a professor of cardiovascular medicine and the founder of the Women's Heart Clinic at the Mayo Clinic. She has also been a leader in the study of spontaneous coronary dissection, gender-based cardiology, healthcare equity, and participation of women and minorities in healthcare. She's also been pivotal in the development of the Red Dress campaign, as well as the Go Red for Women campaigns, among many other activities. I can't even begin to list the number of seminal papers that she's authored. And I can't thank you enough, Dr. Hayes, for spending your time with us today. It is a pleasure because I get to talk about heart disease in women and spontaneous coronary artery dissection, which are constantly on my mind and of great interest to me. Well, and of great interest to many people. As I heard you say once, all of us are going to be treating women. They're probably going to be about half of our population. And even more importantly, 100% of us have had mothers. Spontaneous coronary dissection has been a bit of a mystery, and I have to admit, as an interventional cardiologist, I'm always a little bit nervous when I'm presented with a young woman with chest pain or a young woman coming in with an acute myocardial infarction. Before we get to what the pathophysiology is, I think it is thinking heart, thinking that this could be an acute myocardial infarction when that woman comes in or mentions it to a healthcare provider. One of the challenges that we still have, although made huge progress over the past two decades, is taking women seriously, and particularly those individuals who don't look the part. They don't look like they should be having a heart attack. And so I would start with when somebody comes in with chest discomfort of some type that sounds like a heart attack, even if she comes in a package that does not look like she could possibly be having one. That's when we as healthcare providers and EMTs and ED and cardiologists need to do those very basic things that we would do to rule that out, an ECG and troponins. It's interesting to me that part of the problem, like you said, is that this is not the typical patient. And we have to have an open mind to that because even though it happens relatively rarely, it is the most common form of heart attack in women under the age of 50. Certainly, it is something that we need to be worried about. When you see a young woman who comes in with a spontaneous coronary dissection, knowing that we've now made the diagnosis, what do you start thinking about as far as how we're going to approach her? In the cath lab? In the cath lab, just in the emergency room. What's the first things that you start thinking about? Again, we're going to take it for granted that we suspected and we're going to confirm that she's got acute coronary syndrome. I think there's a couple of things to remember is... These individuals do present typically in that over 80% are going to have chest pain or symptoms that are just like the list of chest pain symptoms that, uh, or list of, list of heart attack symptoms that we see on the American Heart Association website. So that's important. The other thing is about 20% in our registry, about 20% in the ED, their first troponin was negative. If we use some of those newer rubrics and risk assessments and modeling that we are increasingly using in emergency departments, 
I do worry that some of these low-risk women, because they do not have hyperlipidemia, they're not smokers, they may get filtered into no second troponin. So that could miss 20% of them. But anyway, assuming they've ruled in, I'm now thinking assessing their clinical stability because if they look like they're having an end STEMI, I think trying to manage them as we would another, trying to get their hemodynamics and their pain under control. And I think we have some leisure in taking them to the cath lab. Some of these individuals will present with STEMI and those obviously we treat with our STEMI protocols and get them there. Even if they present with STEMI though, uh, you've probably had this experience, they don't have that abrupt 100% occlusion of a vessel that we might expect in a person with atherosclerotic heart attack. We may actually see TEMI two or three flow by the time we get the catheter in there. And so just because they presented as STEMI, if we see decent flow, again, we're going to come back to one of the sort of leading points today and what's been different over the past decade is that we try to manage these individuals conservatively. You can call it managing it conservatively. You can call it managing it medically, but not instrumenting that already torn, damaged, and fragile artery, particularly if there's adequate flow, patient is hemodynamically stable, relatively pain-free, because we know now that we can make it worse. Certainly, we've all been in that situation where we have a 95% occluded mid-LAD and we're uncertain of what's happening. We go in there and we throw in a stent and then find out that we've now just made things worse. And instead of putting in one stent, we're putting in two, three, or four stents. It doesn't lead to a good feeling. I think that points to raising awareness among those who are doing the diagnostic and interventional to learn the new definition of SCAD. So you and I both, when we went to cardiology school, we were told to look for a flap, right? That was the only people that we really considered would be a coronary dissection. So we'd look for an intimal flap, a double lumen, and then we'd diagnose that as a dissection. And we'd see that after PCI and the like. What we've learned over the past decade is actually the vast majority present with an intramural hematoma, probably 70% of them, which sort of means that we were probably missing 70 to 80% of SCADs more than a decade ago. It is that relearning of the pattern recognition of how to view the angiogram and at least start suspecting it. So when do we suspect this might be a SCAD and not an atherosclerotic blockage? Well, obviously the demographics of the patient can be a clue, a younger woman, but even older women can have SCAD. Often you don't see other atherosclerosis in any of the other vessels. So this is like a single lesion maybe some coronary tortuosity, which often goes along with SCAD. And none of these are definitive. But as I have talked to my own colleagues and colleagues across the country who have been operating under this newer definition of SCAD for the past seven to 10 years, most are feeling very confident in making those diagnoses based on angiographic appearance alone. But knowing that we have backup of OCT or intravascular ultrasound when we are not sure and when it is safe to do so. Do not feel that you have to do intravascular imaging on all these people because it does raise the risk of further damaging the vessel, but don't leave the cath lab without a pretty confident diagnosis. What my experience is working in a SCAD clinic, often providing second opinions to people who had their angiogram a month ago or six months ago, 
I can't go back and do the OCT. I have to use what I have and we may never be sure. And that's tough for me, tough for the patient, but it actually makes it more difficult to manage them because if we think it's SCAD, but it really was atherosclerosis and we don't give them the full court press of atherosclerotic preventive medications, we've done that patient a disfavor. And similarly, if we blast them with a lot of medications that they don't need, particularly a young person who might be exposed to dual antiplatelet therapy for a long time and is at increased bleeding risk. So pattern recognition and learning to recognize it and trying to make the diagnosis. It's not possible all the time, but making that call correctly right there in the cath lab. Going back and walking that back is often pretty difficult. But going back to that patient that we're talking about in the emergency room, if you do have this premonition that this potentially is SCAD, and knowing that SCAD is often associated with intramural hematomas, would you be less likely to lead with upfront dual antiplatelet therapy or upfront heparinization, or probably safer to have one standard in going to the cath lab and then making that determination once the angiogram has begun? Yeah, I, I would go with the latter. I think that the potential harm of not anticoagulating somebody who's got a plaque rupture, I think is greater than short-term anticoagulation until you make that diagnosis in the cath lab. But we stop anticoagulation. Once we make the diagnosis of SCAD, we stop the heparin and all of the anticoagulation that's going on. We're talking about maybe 24 hours. As you intimate, there is theoretical harm with anticoagulation. When we think about atherosclerosis and plaque rupture, that's a clotting event. It is a thrombus that forms on top of it and clots things out. If we think about SCAD, it's a bleeding event, right? It's bleeding between the layers of the artery. And it's theoretically, we could increase the bleeding into the intramural hematoma, the tension, and perhaps compromise the lumen. But I think the greater risk, in my opinion, would be not heparinizing, for instance, a person who had intraluminal clot. One of the things that you've identified that I think is really sort of interesting is how well these patients will often do with healing afterwards and with not doing anything. And when you've now re-looked at those arteries, let's say a year, two, three years later, that they're really pretty healed, that they don't necessarily even have a double lumen anymore. Or if they had a hematoma, that hematoma is resolved. We usually were giving dual antiplatelet therapy or at least single antiplatelet therapy to these people consistently. Do you think there's any role for that in the long-term resolution? I know you've read several of the consensus statements, and this is clearly expert opinion consensus lack of data. <laughs> because there are theoretical risks of both. And there's some cues, but there has not been, and I think it would be important in SCAD when and if we get to the point where we can have randomized clinical trials, this would be a question that I think is really important to answer. So there's several signals. One is those individuals who present with a flap, as opposed to an intramural hematoma, seem to have fewer short-term complications. Or the flip, if you have intramural hematoma, we see more early chest pain needing to go back to the cath lab, extension of the dissection, or another bump in enzymes. And so we presume, and sometimes have been able to confirm with angiography, that this is a bleed into the intramural hematoma. And there've been a number of studies that have come at this at different angles, but have pretty much said those people who have intramural hematoma have poor 30-day outcomes. Not death, it's not a difference in mortality, but they'll, they have more chest pain, they have more trips to the cath lab. And if you have that flap, it's probably gonna heal, it's decompressed. 
there was a lot of debate a few years ago, is SCAD an outside-in or an inside-out problem? And by that was, is it that the intima gets roughed up and splits off, or is it bleeding between the walls? And most of the evidence is pointing toward this is more of a vasovasorum bleed within as opposed to coming from the inside of the lumen. And so when we think about giving antiplatelet therapy, dual, single, or over anticoagulation, we could theoretically increase that risk. There have been a couple of observational studies that have suggested that theoretical risk may be real, that have shown that extension may be worse in those on dual versus single. Now, none of us cardiologists are quite courageous enough to just say, you know, this isn't a clotting event. So in fact, it's a bleeding vent. We're not even going to use aspirin. But I would say that that is a course that probably should be tested because once we take those catheters out, I'm not sure what anything that we do in terms of platelet activation or deactivation probably helps or harms. I'm going to put you on the spot here. And I know you've been put on the spot with this question before. Do you put people on dual platelet therapy after their event? Single antiplatelet therapy, where are you standing these days? Most of the people, by the time they see me, have been on dual antiplatelet therapy for at least a few weeks, and I stop it. If they were conservatively managed, no stent, I stop it. I take them off of the second. And if they have bleeding or bruising, I actually don't push the aspirin, and I'm kind of de-prescribing single antiplatelet therapy after about a year. I've got any patients who listen to this, they'll say, well, Dr. Hayes still has me. That's actually a more recent practice of mine. And I think the rationale is one, there's no proven benefit. If there is benefit, it would be early. The whole benefit of aspirin, if we go way back 20 plus years to the GISI trials in Europe, it was having aspirin on board decreased platelet thrombus burden, and it saved myocardium. Aspirin is not going to prevent a dissection. And I can't even imagine how it would actually limit infarct size. So again, moving away from it and doing no harm. So I might get to the point that it would be no antiplatelet therapy, but I'm kind of not there yet because it's actually hard to go against that tide. And even if you don't intervene, current ACS guidelines would say dual antiplatelet therapy for a year, not for SCAD, but for heart attack. So deprescribing the second antiplatelet therapy goes against current guidelines, right? Well, in general, except for the guidelines are guidelines. They are not recipes. We use them to guide our decision-making, not to make our decisions for us. And that's sort of an important distinction, I think. That's such a great point. But I also think that guidelines are often the floor, right? When we say somebody has a heart attack, you need to get them on a stat. There's guidelines, statins, beta block, or whatever. Because some people were not getting the benefit of those highly beneficial therapies. I think reminding patients and our colleagues about guidelines and how those guidelines were perhaps not designed for SCAD patients. That is a unique group. And I think the other thing that's been compelling is kind of the the walk back of aspirin for primary prevention for sure over the past decade. And if you think about SCAD patients, they really are much more primary prevention patients in some ways, even if they have had a heart attack before because it wasn't a plaque rupture mechanism. And so if we're saying you should not give a 60-year-old or a 45-year-old with limited risk factors aspirin to prevent a heart attack. I sort of feel like our SCAD patients are kind of in that patient population. 
With better treatment of hyperlipidemia, the less aspirin has been important in our armamentarian in general. Often when we have a patient who comes in with scab, with the acute event, afterwards we'll have a lot of chest pain. We think that a lot of that has to do with coronary vasospasm and maybe with the decreased flow and some other activation that's happening with that acutely. But what, one of the intriguing things that has happened that we've all seen is the patient who has another event in three or four days. And we've taken as a standard of care now to keep our SCAD patients in the hospital for a minimum of four days. And I have had one patient who had an event in her RCA, came in and we treated it. She did okay. We discharged her on day three. And then on day five, came back in with an LAD event. And we saw the two days before that the LAD was fine. It was a mid-distal LAD lesion and I don't believe my catheter was down there. It's one of those things that's unclear why we're seeing patients who have second events. And when you've seen the patients who've had second events, why they're having them often in a different distribution. I think there's probably several mechanisms. One would be that it really is an extension. And it's been reported between 7 and up to 15% that within that first week, there will be an extension. And we don't call that a new event, really. It is the same SCAD. It's an extension. I also think that during their original angiogram, probably had some trauma. We've seen a few where when we did not see that very osteo right coronary, we saw the LAD SCAD, and then they came back, but it was kind of there. And, you know, a quarter of SCADs present as multivessel. Mm -hmm. And so I think the third group may be, we actually were focusing on the most obvious SCAD, there was just the start of another vessel, and that just completed itself in the time frame, and may have little or nothing to do with catheter problems. But our practice is among those who are conservatively managed to keep them in the hospital. We're usually leaning more toward five days. It kind of scares me when I talk to patients who actually had a, a mid LAD juicy intramural hematoma who say, "Oh yeah, they decided I needed medical treatment. They sent me out the next day." Now they made it fine, <laughs> but I live in a state where many people live pretty far from healthcare. And so when you dismiss them from the hospital, they may be driving an hour or two home. And that hour or two when that LAD does decide to extend might be the difference between life or death. And so we've taken a conservative approach. Now we may not keep that patient who has a very distal LAD circuit. We may not keep them as long, but those mid and more proximal we do, and particularly if they're having chest pain. But if you're still having a nitro drip on a patient two, three days into their event, this is time to take another look because they may have extended, they may need intervention now. And sometimes we can take that mantra a bit too far and not bite the bullet and just intervene if we need to. One of the interesting things that you've identified, there's a very close association. About 30% of patients will also have fibromuscular dysplasia. And I'm intrigued by that because it seems like these are two very different pathophysiologic mechanisms. You, know, you have the intramural hematoma versus a medial hypertrophy. How do you see these two things being related? It's become standard of care to do full body CT scans afterwards looking for this. And we're seeing it more and more. I can say this just with speculation. In our first retrospective publication, which we published in 2012, 
87 patients, so not a lot of patients compared to what we know now. And we looked at their femoral angiograms, and only 16 of them had filmed their femoral angiogram. And of those, eight had obvious FMD, just in the iliacs, right? And I remember the very first patient where I made the connection because it was a 34-year-old woman. I always ask kind of, why are you here? What's the goal of your visit? And she said, I want to get pregnant. I've been told I cannot. And she had had a scad. She had a stent. She had an EF of 40%. And I remember I was listening to her neck and I heard this really loud bruise. It was very unexpected. This is back in 2011, 2012. So I sent her for an ultrasound. And because that's what I thought you did, because if it was an 80-year-old with Maurice, you'd send him for ultrasound. And it was a very kind radiologist says, looks most like significant FMD, but this is not the test that will characterize it. (laughs) Um, So she was my first really memorable patient. I still follow her. She's never had any neurological issues, but starting to see it more and more. And importantly, the demographics of SCAD and the demographics of fibromuscular dysplasia are almost identical. It is women. And what we learned in medical school and in cardiology training is it was a board question, right? It was a 35-year-old woman with resistant hypertension. What are you going to do? Oh, you'll do a renal angiogram to look for FMD. But this is FMD that typically is very mild. This would have never been picked up before because it's clinically silent. It's often just a few string of beads. And so it is with the rise of medical imaging that we have made this connection. We became more confident about this connection when almost exactly at the same time, and I will say within months of publications, Jackie saw at Vancouver General Hospital and her lens was more, hey, FMD patients seem to have more SCAD. They seem to be at higher risk. So we were saying SCAD patients have FMD, And she was observing that FMD patients seem to have more SCAD. So you may not be able to make causality, but clear association there. When we think about FMD, though, we've known for decades that they are at higher risk for dissections, carotid dissections, aneurysms, as well as stenoses. And so it may be that there is a connection between that medial, that smooth muscle disarray that allows breaches and causes dissection. There's also some genetic overlap between some mutations that are more common in FMD and in SCAD patients, and we may talk about that later. But the rationale for the screen from brain to pelvis is less about does she or he have fibromuscular dysplasia? It's does he or she have a complication of fibromuscular dysplasia or some other arteriopathy that we need to follow or treat, and in particular, a brain aneurysm. We have identified dissections in other vessels, old healed dissections in carotid and vertebral arteries with pseudoaneurysms. We take a shortcut sometimes, oh, we're going to rule out FMD. And I would argue that currently available methods, whether it's MRA or CTA, even full body, or even invasive angiography is insufficient to rule it out because of spatial resolution issues, as well as the fact of sampling. So we do brain to pelvis. Those are where it's probably most important that we identify something that we need to fix. But we have a number of cases that we had very classic FMD in the brachial artery, which we went back and we looked at their scan 
normal, normal. So I don't tell patients who have a normal scan, oh, you don't have FMD. I say, you probably don't. And if you do, it's really mild. And it's certainly not in the important areas that we need to look at. Do you ever rescan them later or follow up on scans with them? Yeah, I I think that's got to be really individualized because we don't have a lot of guidance. Jeff Olin at Mount Sinai, who's been following a cohort of FMD patients for many years and for years was doing annual ultrasounds. So after the initial diagnosis, he found and has published on is over time and over many years, there's little change. It does not progress in the vast majority. So that's very comforting and I think frees us from having to look at things multiple times. But these are younger patients, and I don't think it gives them a lifetime warranty. As I'm seeing patients who maybe I first saw eight or nine years ago and screen them, if they come back and see me, I'm saying, maybe we should take a look again. And if we do have a finding, for instance, they have mild FMD, or maybe they have a splenic artery aneurysm, then depending on the size and location, repeat in a year, I want to see you back in two years. Because when we see a 45-year-old woman with a splenic artery aneurysm, it could have looked like that for 20 years. I don't want to get over-interventional. There is a cost, both financial and psychological and potentially health-wise of continuing screening. So I don't think we've quite right-sized. On a side note, though, I will say that the field of fibromuscular dysplasia was kind of static. The connection with SCAD has really excited those who are experts in vascular disease and fibromuscular dysplasia to look at many of these questions, and we are partnering with them. And so I do think we'll have more guidance. But I think the takeaway would be for somebody who has a normal or near normal, really mild FMD, you do not need to be rescanning them once a year or every two years. You just don't. And then if you find an aneurysm or a dissection that needs follow-up, then deciding based on that lesion. And you may need to ask one of your neurovascular or vascular medical colleagues to help because they have more experience with brain aneurysms than the average cardiologist does. This is the end of part one. In part two, we discuss genetic testing, the creation of online registries, and the holistic approach to the SCAD patient. Enjoy. Enjoy.